This is Planning Your Financial Future with Don Fox and Andy Lister of Investors Group and your host, Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well listen to old shows as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, morning Scott. Scott. How to... Uh, what are we talking about today? How to avoid failing at retirement. How bad is this? You just <laughs> gave this to me. I've written it down in my own writing, and I can't read it. <laughs> it's way too early in the morning. How to avoid uh, failing at retirement? Failing at retirement. Well, and because the, probably the funny thing is, is first, that, take good notes. I would say. Would yeah, be the best, the, the no, but but most of us always think about well, how do I need to do to succeed at retirement? Mm -hmm. Right? It's never about how do I fail at retirement. Yeah, yeah. And um, and this is something that is a phenomenon that. I think only you see having spent years in the business is the consistency or how many times we see people underlive mm -hmm. their retirement. So when I'm talking about failing at retirement, I'm going to talk about the five keys, the five some five key strategies to avoid failing at retirement. And you know, we did investors group did a survey uh uh last year about um underliving retirement and trying to find out the sense of where Canadians were and get some, throw some numbers around that as well. And we, we discovered that uh, most Canadians are enjoying retirement. There are many of us that are still worrying that the good times won't last and we're kind of underliving mm -hmm. what we could be doing in those years for fear of overspending. So it's not about saving enough, not saving enough. It's about not spending enough. Right. Mm. Exactly. And so the survey just told us that 59%, almost 59% of retired Canadians are concerned about being able to make their retirement funds last for the remaining years. 64% find it hard to strike a balance between enjoying retirement and making the money last. And 44% were worried that after they spend money on necessary on non-necessary items or experiences, they felt they did they were worried about doing it. Right. So there was a lot of remorse, I guess, in terms mm -hmm. of actually using some of the money for for some of the fun things in life, right? Mm -hmm. And in terms of avoiding failing at retirement, uh, I think one analogy that kind of made sense to me is you visualize that while you're working, your money is, is like a river. And there's basically a stream of income coming in, and you've got all kinds of options. You can funnel cash as you need to various, whether it's hobbies, your expenses, etc. But that river continues to flow, and there's no issues at all. And you really don't, other than saving for retirement, you're not too concerned in general, right? But when you retire, the river becomes a lake. And now you have a lake and you're trying to figure out how do I protect that to mm -hmm. make sure it doesn't drain yeah. out too fast. And so number one, I guess the number one mistake or the number one thing to avoid failing at retirement is to definitely keep an eye on your spending. There's, there is no doubt about it. We still need to keep track of this. And it's funny, one of the things, um, uh, Father's Day recently, and in, in talking to my kids about mm -hmm. finances, et cetera, and just saying, you know, the capacity, there's really three things that, that make sense to me. The capacity for people to, to save mm -hmm. and your ability to save is going to go a long, long way to making you financially successful. That's probably the number one thing. Number two is keeping an eye on your debt, making sure you're paying down debt and mm -hmm. managing your debt properly 
properly, you know, credit card debt, etc. And the third one, which was is I think just as important, is knowing where your money's going. Mm. And so over the years, I mean, I've used uh, various software, Quicken, for example, but there are various pieces out there that help you sort of consolidate all of your different financial statements, whether it's from your credit card, your debit card, or just cash withdrawals, to sort of categorize things and get an idea of where your money is going. And and for the most part, if people are saving an appropriate amount for their retirement, the spending side kind of looks after itself right. in the sense that that frees you up to spend it. But keeping an eye on spending is so is is critical. There's no doubt about it. And while you're working, you know, the river. You're, you, if you've got a healthy river, okay. you've got good income, mm-hmm. uh, lots of uh, money coming in. You can sort of have lavish spending habits. There's no issue about it. You can take great vacations. You can do more meals out. You can uh, go on lots of shopping trips, but once you retire, a lot of times you still have this a similar desires, right? Mm. You still want to do it, but the, and now the issue is you have more time. Yeah. <laughs> so, and sometimes it takes more money. I was laughing. My uh, my wife said, "Geez, if you ever want to pick up a, a, a an elderly gentleman or a middle aged gentleman, just go to Lee Valley. All the retired guys are there <laughs> spending money on projects." <laughs> With lots of time on their hands. Woodworking yeah. projects coming yeah, in, yeah. in the way they go. Um, so the the main thing is that we we do end up, sometimes we do have expensive hobbies. You know, it might be boating, it might be golfing, um, vacation properties, all of that. And I guess the key thing to watch then in terms of the spending is your withdrawal rate. Mm-hmm. How much are you taking out? What percentage? We often talk about a 4 to 5% range is a place to think about in terms of how much can I take out of my lake every year and uh, and still make sure it's protected. So what are the five ways? Or sorry, the second thing I think to do is Cutting off the kids. Mm. And cutting off the kids, and I think really what this is, is, you know, as an adult, kids are uh, failing to become financially independent. And that's are, we allowed, are we allowed to cut off the kids? <clears throat> yeah, it's a big drain, <laughs> right? It's a big drain. And I think, you know, what's most important about cutting off the kids is basically, you know, we know that we're going to step in periodically for a crisis from mm-hmm. time to time. But the problem is, is that too often the crisis become a permanent condition. Mm-hmm. There's always something mm-hmm. yeah. that they need help from mom and dad on. And so I think the most important thing in this particular uh, area is to make sure that they're aware of how much it costs. Mm-hmm. So having that discussion with them about, you know, I'm we're paying for your phones. Yeah. So I've got we've got three phones we're paying for, and that costs us two hundred and fifty bucks a month. There's three thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're driving our vehicles, and it costs us, you know, three grand a year, two hundred and fifty a month to pay for insurance mm-hmm. to cover the vehicles. Never mind maintenance, etc. Um, whenever we travel, you guys seem to like to come along. <laughs> 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 or if there's a cottage that's been rented, yeah. uh, the kids like to participate in that, right? There's yeah, family vacations are free for kids. Family vacations Ooh, are free, they're yeah. supposedly. Yeah. Um, so what does it cost to have... 35 years old. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's right, exactly. So what does it cost to have the kids along on your travels, yeah. right? And, uh, I mean, if you're just renting a cottage, you're, maybe you'd rent it anyway, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe you need a little larger one. So maybe that costs another 1000 bucks. Mm-hmm. A year. What about food and meals? So whenever the kids are home, yeah. um, well, there's an expectation that the fridge should be full. There's nothing in the fridge, you know. Mm-hmm. Fill up the fridge, and um, and of course meals. If you're going out for entertainment.
entertainment. Yeah. You know, you're decided to eat out one night. Uh, guess who likes to tag along? Mm-hmm. Or can you bring me home something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's another thousand bucks. Um, what about gifts? You know, throughout the year, there's birthdays. There's uh, other things that we celebrate. What does it cost to for gifts at Christmas, etc.? So another thousand bucks there. And then generally, just having them around, I find that there's they break stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to repair things. <laughs> it seems like everything always goes wrong when you're not home, right? Yeah. Yeah. You've gone away for the weekend or you've gone away for a week and you come back and something's broken or something is, is messed up. So there's, so I just did that quick list added up to 10 grand, 10 grand a year. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, you, if you had a pot of money earning 5%, there's basically $200,000 of your retirement lake is now just earmarked for looking after the kids. Yeah. Right? So that's a pretty big chunk yeah. every year. So number two, I guess, on my list is avoid cut off, cutting off the kids. And I think, again, the main thing is having the conversation with them. you got to get them off the payroll. And ultimately, that's just going to strengthen their ability to make their own life financial successful. You're helping them. Yep. Number three, plan wisely in the event of divorce. All right. Wow. And this is interesting. We're calling it gray divorce. And the gray divorce rates have actually skyrocketed. They've more than doubled in the last 25 years. Mm. Now, this might be an issue around the fact that... um, you know, we're, we're living longer. So yeah. <laughs> we weren't designed to spend this much time together. And I guess people are well, considering like when I married you, <laughs> when I married you, I had no idea I was going to live this. I long. signed up for like 35 years. Now we're, we're, now we're pushing 50. What's yeah. going on? Exactly. That was only supposed to 25 years. I'm going right. 45 years now. Isn't that in the prenup? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's funny. So the amount of gray divorce is actually increasing dramatically. And, um, so having a realistic, look at your financial situation if you had to split the assets uh that's a major change to your lifestyle yeah and um you know now you've got the same pot of money trying to operate two homes Mm. and uh so clearly planning for that and and uh, and because women live longer it can even have a more devastating effect on their financial and retirement life and make them and makes what it does is it makes us more fearful and therefore again you know we're we're planning we tend to underlive mm. as a result of it <clears throat> number 4 is <clears throat> pardon me be be aware of vacation home fantasies and you know, when you're in your peak earning years, you're in your 50s, and now the kids are starting to leave, you find you have more money, mm. and the dream of that second home or that second property really becomes kind of a, a, of a fun thing to, mm-hmm. to, to fantasize about. And it may be something that's part of your future retirement, we're going to spend time there, or oh, the family can come and enjoy time on the weekends, and when we're having holidays, I can pursue my hobbies there. <clears throat> Etc. But um, you know, a vacation home tends to be a, a very serious burden in terms of the financial side of it. Uh, it's expensive maintaining two homes, uh, especially when your income drops mm-hmm. in retirement. And the gap is actually the largest in the, for the affluent. So those are individuals who have really have more expensive homes. They've have uh, they have more lavish spending, and so the idea of a vacation property appeals to them. But suddenly in retirement, now wait a minute, this is costing us a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And in a recession, vacation spots are the most vulnerable. Yeah, right? they're not going to be easy to sell. So the plan is you need to really account for the ongoing costs and and stick to the plan. And number five is don't underlive your wealth. And 
you know, retirement is definitely a new chapter. It's a time to explore, to mm-hmm. do things, look at different ideas. And But the problem is that people fail to live fully in retirement and enjoy what they've built and saved up. And uh, for a lot of us, like maybe, are you a cautious spender? And if you're a cautious spender now, you're probably going to be a cautious yeah. spender in retirement because old habits die hard. So... We definitely have, you know, and that can sink in where you have an irrational fear that the future um, might hold, that there's mm-hmm. some kind of problems are going to happen. And you sort of remain in full-on what I call save and conserve mode, right? You're always still saving and conserving just in case. And so the goal really is to review your retirement lake with your financial planner uh, and then look at if we took a bucket and we dipped into the lake, and we're going to call this your fun bucket, Take that bucket out, set it aside, and now feel like, know that you can spend that fun bucket without having to worry about the lake draining. And so really it's about taking pleasure in that and learning how to take pleasure in spending your fun bucket to make sure you're not underliving. And cannonball into that lake. <laughs> uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. Investment planning, tax planning, estate planning, expert advice. This is Planning Your Financial Future on 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Time for some investment lessons. Yes. yes listen well, up. Here we go. Well, it's Take a, notes. Interesting. I, I was in... Uh, San Francisco last week and taking a course and uh, we went to the Wharton School of Business, mm-hmm. which is a world-renowned uh, school. It's one of the best in the world, for that matter, and certainly North America. And they have a program simply for, it's called the Wharton's Private Wealth Management Program. And what they've done, is started in 1999, so just, just about nine years ago, and they've had everybody from the ultra-high net worth take it. Mm-hmm. And those are people that have over $30 million to invest. Mm-hmm. To others that sold the business, to the accumulators. So they've got a wide range of people have taken this program and over a thousand investors have now taken this program. It's a two-day program. So an example would be a business owner that recently sold their business um, or those that have already got their business Mm -hmm. and they want to invest outside of their business because having all their money inside their business is just not a good way to do things. And the other part is the ones that are the second, third, and fourth generation investors that Maybe their grandfather made a lot of money, and now their father's taken over that money, and then upon their death, they may be taken over this money, and there's a lot of risk, because quite often, the third generation blows the money. Mm. It's actually only... Not as savvy as the first? No, not at all, (laughs) because they they may not have had that, you know, the savvy of growing that business in the first place, and that discipline. So now they've just lived the lifestyle, and it's quite interesting, but they don't want to blow it. Mm. Now they're scared to, because they've seen about only 15% can run a successful business by the third generation. Right. 85% fail. Mm. So, very interesting, but there's also different methods. So, you look at a high net worth segment, they are very different than, say, the general normal investor. And the biggest thing with them is they don't want to really touch the principal. They want to let it continue to grow. Right. And so, generally speaking, the ultra-high net worth families are only spending 
three percent of their investments or less per year. Mm -hmm. So if their investments are making five percent, they're allowing the rest growing by two percent a year. Yeah. So you're seeing a, a, a massive growth there, and that's their goal. Mm -hmm. They do not want to. They want it to be generational after generation to continue to do well. Um, and you need to continue that to under five percent because I'm going to show in a second that. You know, this four percent is is a generous amount mm -hmm. in order to spend every year, mm -hmm. and you will start to get into principal. So then you look at the ordinary investor, and their real their goal is to make it the rest of their life without yeah. running out of money. Right? They want to have a decent lifestyle, as Andy was just talking about, um, worry free. Yeah. Okay, so they're not necessarily uh, under living, and that is a something that both Andy and I counsel clients on all the time is, okay, we got this much money, you're not, you, you are under living. Mm -hmm. You got this kind of 10 year window, you can have a fantastic life because you don't know where your health may be yeah. after 85 years old. So for for example, so if you have an investor that's a goal, is they're used to spending 100,000 a year, what can they do? So you need to then look at, I want to spend 100,000 a year in retirement. Uh, you, you fast forward it, how much money do I need? to spend 100000 a year, then how much do I have to save every year to get that lump sum to give me that income? So that's kind of the financial plan for the average retiree. And it's actually interesting because, you know, you look at the a million dollars isn't a million dollars it used to be. No. Everybody's saying, oh, wow, you know, I want to be a millionaire. A millionaire, you know, 5% returns is only 50000 a year. Mm -hmm. Most people are making over 50000 a year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you do have your old age security and you got your Canada pension plan. But you may want to get those big items. For example, Andy was mentioning the fun things. Oh, for example, if you do have a cottage, you know, or you want to spend more time in Florida, particularly at retirement when you got a lot of time on your hands. Every day is now a weekend. Yeah. So you got lots of time. <laughs> now you got to make sure you have the money. Because it's not much fun not doing no. the things you always wanted to no. do. So you have basically different portfolios. So you want to invest differently depending on the investor. So there's the retired person, or current retired person, and that is then separated. Are they retired um, right now? Okay. And are they near death? So when I say, like, are they 65 to say 85? Okay. Or are they over 85? Very different retirement stages. Um, there's young retirees and old retirees, if you will. So one, the older retiree is more looking at estate planning, mm -hmm. where the younger retiree is looking, I don't want to run out of money, and I want to, I want to have a great life. Yeah. I've done what I can for the kids. I, do, may, you know, I don't mind helping them out down the road, but I've saved this for a reason. Then you get the young investor, very different. Now we've got to look at more aggressively, I've got 30 years to retirement, how do I invest? Or am I really close to retirement, how do I invest? So you come along different portfolios based on where they are. And I know Andy and I have talked about this many times that you know you have to invest somewhere in equities if, if you're going to get a reasonably good rate of return. Because in equities are, are a portfolio of stocks. Okay, so if you're looking at a portfolio of say, you know, a, a mutual fund in Canadian equities, they'd be household names. Like, you know, Royal Bank, Bank of Montreal, Bell Canada, you know, the, the very big ones, um, TransCanada, uh, utility companies, whatever it might be, that's a portfolio of stocks. And most pensions invest in these things. And if you look at a, a portfolio for a younger investor, the Wharton School of Business looks at, you should probably have about an 80-20 mix, where 80% of it's in stocks, and 20% of it is in things that p produce an income, like bonds, 
mortgages, a fixed income they call that, okay? And you can go that way for quite some time. So a good example of a portfolio for a younger investor would be Canadian stocks would be 30%. U.S. stocks would also be 30%. European stocks would be 25%. Emerging markets would be 5%. And then bonds would be about 15 And real estate investments would be 5 And not your own house, but a real estate <coughs> type of investment, a mutual fund investing in real estate. That there will definitely give you a, a reasonably good return. And it's important because an extra 1% or 2% while you're accumulating your retirement savings massively increases your chance of success. So if you have a 2% increase in your return, you'll likely practically double the amount you have at retirement. So for those younger investors that are being too safe, it's actually risky Mm -hmm. because you're almost letting go of half of what your retirement could have been. So you need to have a proper financial plan, and this would be an investment plan. So you, you create this investment plan that is perfect for your age and your goals and if you've got a long time to accumulate money to retirement. So one option, and for those that have uh, work pensions, they have these things such as called target date portfolios. And what they are is uh, you say, okay, well, what's my retirement? I'm going to retire in 25 years. And the company creates this mix for you based on that retirement goal. And as you get older, it automatically adjusts. And I know the professor here was, he said they're better than nothing. They're not the best because they do eventually get pretty conservative. So if you've got 25 years to retirement, you would only have 10% in fixed income. And I 100% agree with that. But all of a sudden, you've got 15 years for retirement. You're up to 25% fixed income. And there's a very, very steep line. And what happens there is, so for example, five years to retirement, you're almost 50% fixed income. And they have a very steep line of how much fixed income you have. And you're getting, you know, retirement is such a long period of time. And so if you're going to spend a third of your life in retirement, that might be too conservative. Mm. But it's certainly better than just picking a GIC portfolio or something very conservative. This is certainly a very good way to start. But you may want to talk to your financial planner to make sure it fits with the plan you have with your financial planner. So I know Andy and I, we always look at at a client's portfolio that they have with us, but we also are managing what are they doing through their work plan. Mm -hmm. Because if there's a matching program, that is the number one thing um, clients should be looking at. Because, hey, we're not going to give you 50%. On, you put uh, $1,000 with us, we're not going to give you $500. Mm-hmm. But your company will. Mm-hmm. And what a great plan. But it's amazing how few people maximize it. Yeah. It's, un- it's under 80%. Um, and I know I've seen, I've seen some that are under 60% are actually utilizing those plans. Mm. And they're actually giving you the money. So it's tr- trying to find that appropriate mix and, and changing it as time goes on. So if, for example... You're sitting there back in 1987, 30 years ago, and you had that 80-20 mix, and you had $100,000. It would have grown to $1.3 million today. So not a bad growth rate. Okay, so that's 80% in equities, 20% fixed income. Your 100000 now I'm not quite sure where somebody at that age is going to have 100000 mm. Okay, that, they would have to save it or have some, but if you never added a penny, your 100000 would have grown to $1.3 million without help. But that's interesting, but the question we often get is, 
what's that worth today? Well, that's a great question because that's the most important is after inflation, what does that give me? Well, it actually works out to after the Canadian inflation rate from 1987 to 2017, that 100000 would be worth 717000 So now if you take that 717 now that assumes you never added another penny, like I said, you would end up with a, a pension of at 4%, 28680 a year. Not terrible, but not great. So that means you do have to do more. That 1.3 million that you might see in these charts looks fantastic, but you got to take into account inflation because it still has the same buying power as having 717,000 today. So what they have to look at is why do investors take on what they call equity premium? And what equity premium is, is if you invest in a bucket of stocks, how much extra are you getting in terms of return versus a guaranteed investment? And that's equity premium. So if a T-bill averages 2% and stocks average 6%, the equity premium is 4%. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this is all fine and good as long as you know everybody realizes there's risk with stocks. Mm-hmm. You are taking volatility risk. And funny enough, if you look at the equity premium for Canada for the last, from year 1900 all the way to 2000, it was 4.2%. Okay, so you got to call it 4% for argument's sake. You made an extra 4%. That's all above inflation. So that's not terrible at all. That's not bad at all. Now, those numbers go through some major times, like World War II, some mm-hmm. massive crises. And, and even then, a lot of experts are questioning how accurate these are. Because certainly Japan and Germany's numbers um, went through devastation. Yeah. So Canada's are probably pretty accurate. As, as in, in the U.S. one was 5.3. But then if you look at stock returns from 1970 to 2017, a 47-year span, the gross return was 9.8%. So not bad at all. But the real return after inflation was 57 And this is what we've always been saying is after inflation, stocks average about 6% above inflation. And then you have to take off investment fees off of that. So generally speaking, you may be around the 4% above inflation. Mm -hmm. Still, that's great. But this is the part that's tricky with Andy and I is dealing with what about just human nature? And so let's say we went through this 1987 to 2017 and you put 100 grand into investments back in 87 by the time you hit 2000 you would have had $600,000 you think this is great it's a straight line it's, there's a little blurp there's a 19 and there's some a little volatility there in the 90s but nothing major but we hit the dot com bust how what would you have done if your portfolio now after going strong for basically 13 years your 600,000 is now worth 300,000 it's one, and, and there's no end in sight yeah. when you're reading the media and things. Well, let's say you're great, because now you are now 50 years old. Actually, make it 45 for argument's sake. And then you ride it out, and you get your portfolio recovers, and it recovers in about, ten, about seven years. And by the time 2007 goes, just before the financial crisis, you think, okay, this is great. I have 850000 again from that original 100000 But then it drops all the way down to 500000 that's the equity risk. That's the kind of volatility. Now, if you kept a rate till the day, it'd be up to 120, um, 
1.2 million. But living through those crises is important. And so you do have to realize you, how much risk you're taking and understand the volatility. And this is where the do-it-yourself investor has a tough time mm-hmm. because who do they talk to? Yeah. Okay, things are down. What's going on? Um, who do I talk to? And certainly, I find most banks, if you're dealing there, they just simply are order takers, and they're just simply, okay, um, what would you like to do? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I think the market's going to keep going down and taking it out. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I think, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. They're not giving, they're not there to help you get through these situations. And that's where a fin- good financial planner adds 3% to a person's return mm-hmm. because of human behavior. So they're quite saying, why is it that the Canadian investments have underperformed the U.S. investments. And this is an interesting one, and they, they followed this for the last, again, from 1970 to 2017, and it's interesting. All the way, if you had, call it, starting point back in 1970, everything was the same up until about 2014. There's a couple times, certainly uh, in the uh, early 2000s, where U.S. was way ahead of Canada, but they came all the way back down again. And now... From 2014 all the way to now, there's this massive difference in return. And that's where currency has taken place. Our dollar was at par mm-hmm. not too long ago. Yeah. And if it's at 75 cents, for argument's sake, that's a huge... Basically, if you own U.S. stocks and you're a Canadian, even if the stock market did zero, you've just made it in currency. Mm-hmm. And the stock market has also done better than ours of late, too. So you not only have you got their rate of return, but you're getting the currency rate of return, and that's why you're seeing when you have foreign investments, you have two risks to be concerned about. One is the stock market risk, and the other is currency risk. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't be in them. In fact, that model portfolio that was suggested, that is including Europe, emerging markets, U.S., Canada, and fixed income. And so you end up with geographic Mm -hmm. diversification and owning a lot of different currencies. And who's to say Canada's got the best currency? But we're in Canada, and therefore we spend Canadian dollars. Right. But it's great to diversify. So all these things go into building a portfolio. And there's a lot more things we can discuss. But certainly this is the starting blocks of building a good portfolio. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Check out the website at andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the Lister Inquiry button, as well listen to old shows. Or dial 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They will return your call. We're coming right back. Don Fox, Andy Lister, and Scott Thompson. A winning combination. This is Planning Your Financial Future on 900 CHML. We are Planning Your Financial Future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can, of course, listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Uh, investment lessons continued. Absolutely. And it's, you know what? A lot of people look at past performance to try to get an idea what they can expect in the future. Right. And one of the worst examples of trying to use the past to predict the future are bond yields. Okay, what has the Canadian bonds performed at? And the reason is, it's since about 1980, <clears throat> you lived through this, Scott, so did I. Uh, what were the interest rates back in 1980 like? Uh, they were quite high. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And so in 1980, the 10-year bond was 17%. 
Wow. 17%. And now they've just gone And even then up. it wasn't a good deal. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. And mortgage rates were over 70 and a half. For one yeah. years, we're over 21. <laughs> and these, and so if you were smart and you had an extra 100,000 at that time, most people didn't because they're trying to buy houses and the baby booms were just trying to buy houses at the time. But if you happen to have money, if you bought a, a 30-year bond guaranteed at 15 or 16% for the next 30 years, wow. you'd think doesn't get better than this mm -hmm. and you would have been right mm -hmm. but nobody at the time thought that was the peak mm -hmm. there's still talk of interest rates even going higher yeah and interest rates and inflation go hand in hand so what the governments did back then is they started doing things to try to lower the inflation rate well as they lowered the inflation rate a few years later all the interest rates started tumbling down until the point of just a, a couple years ago where the 10-year bond rate was under two percent mm -hmm. and what happens with bonds if interest rates drop bonds go up in value. Mm -hmm. Because if you bought that 30-year bond worth 15%, um, 15% returns per year, it would be worth a ton of money because you can sell that bond. Mm -hmm. And with the going rates only, say, 3%, so, wow, this one pays 15, I'll pay a premium for it. Yeah. So that's what happens with bonds. So if in as interest rates drop, bonds go up in value. So when you're looking at portfolios that include bonds, for what, the last 30 years, bond returns have been extremely good because of falling interest rates. In fact, they've outperformed the Canadian stock returns. So you think, okay, bonds are getting a better return than stocks, and that's a long-term performance. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a, interest rates can't go below zero, okay? Mm -hmm. It's impossible. In fact, they've been creeping up, as you know. So the 20-year return on bonds was 9.8% in Canada, and the 20-year return on stocks was 92 But don't expect to see that replicated. Mm -hmm. There's almost impossible chance of interest rates going down much further because there's a, a limit. So what you need to do is understand that the real re the return from the bond, the income side of the bond, is only paying about two or maybe three. Mm -hmm. And that's what you got to look at. That's Don't expect any premium. In fact, if interest rates rise, you'll have, you could easily have a negative return in bonds mm -hmm. because the opposite happens when right. interest rates rise. So what they're saying is, uh, from a business standpoint, how do you invest your money then? Well, you know, it, in, this is an interesting part I, I never thought of until I, I, I went to this uh, school is depending on the business you're in as, as a business person, if you own a business that has a steady cash flow, let's say you bought those units that, um, storage units, mm -hmm. and they're giving you a rental income practically guaranteed every month. Mm -hmm. You just have to find new people to rent their, to store their stuff in temporarily. That's a very safe investment, and you're going to get a steady source of income. But let's say you own a business that is in the tech area. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a risky business. Mm -hmm. And ver therefore, you should be looking at the investments portfolio totally different for those two clients. Mm -hmm. So somebody in a safe business, you should be probably more aggressive with their investment portfolio because they need some equity risk. Somebody in a, in a very, very risky business already needs to be in a more conservative one. So as Andy and I have always done, we, try, we tailor make the investment side to the client. And these are things that we discuss during the time. But I know Andy's talked about the buckets many times of you should have a safety bucket. And that's having a bucket full of cash. Just for that big purchase you're going to have or a car or a major repair. And it's safe. It doesn't go up and down. You don't have to worry about it. You, know, you got the trip of your lifetime coming. It's going to cost me $40,000. You got money in your safety bucket. Then there's the portfolio bucket. Those are the things that really are for the long term. We have that combination of equities stocks and you have fixed income bonds um, real estate what have you so that's your long-term equity bucket but the ins the other bucket that's kind of interesting is called the aspiration bucket 
And this is the one if you, you may have your own family business. And if you put that family business in your bucket, how much of your net worth is in that family business? Quite often, it's like more than half Mm -hmm. of the person's net worth. And and if you look at farmers and things such as that, it could be 90%. Mm -hmm. So it's highly concentrated, which changes maybe the way you look at those other buckets. And if you're in a company and they have a stock plan, you may be almost forced to hold a lot of the stock with the company you're working say Chorus is an example, mm-hmm. we're with Investors Group, <clears throat> they're in the stock market, we end up with too much of our portfolio in one stock. And so we have to rethink how much we keep in that aspiration bucket because we could be going offside. So really, you, you constantly are monitoring the portfolio, you're getting older, what should I do? But let's say you did say, okay, I've got a liquidity event. I know I'm, I'm running my business. I've been holding on as long as I can. And by the way, it's probably pretty good to hold on to that business. You've worked, say, 30 years in investments or in, sorry, in that business, and you've finally got it figured out and you got this great business running. Why do you want to sell it other than its work? Mm-hmm. But eventually, you do sell it. And that's called a liquidity event. And how you invest the money at that time and the timing of that can be vastly different. So they took a look at three different situations. If I invested, if I had a liquidity event in 1987 or 1997 or 2007 and invested 100% into the 80-20 portfolio that we talked about, well, four years later, in 1987, you would have had a 9.9% return. After 10 years, still 9.9% return. Pretty good time to sell your business and invest. I know there, that was right after the October 19th stock crash mm. and they had a good run. But if you start in 1997, <clears throat> it was 2.2% after the four-year return, and 5.2% 10 years later because of this dot-com bubble. And then finally, if you did it in 2007, four, thousand, four years later, you're still underwater. You still were losing money. 10 years later, you got a 4.6% return. Well, all I'm saying is timing does matter. So what you might want to look at is slowly adding the money on a massive liquidity event, selling your business, say, for a million dollars. Let's put it in slowly and have a have a, a plan where we're saying so much a month goes into the equity area so that the <coughs> timing is taken out. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. Investment planning, tax planning, estate planning, expert advice. This is Planning Your Financial Future on 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website, andyanddon.com. All one word, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're talking about the cost of retiring well. Yeah, I'm sort of back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the show in terms of under living or the five things to do to, mm-hmm. to avoid failing at retirement. But the cost of retiring well is um, a piece of research that I was looking at where they took two real Canadian families, uh, one of them sort of below the statistical average and one of them above the statistical average, and then a fictional average family, the third family we'll call um, uh, Phil and Sarah StatsCan. So they were basically what Stats Canada looked at in terms of the average retiree uh, and that is, where's the actual definition? Survey of household spending 
uh, from StatsCan for senior couples. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those over age 65. So the average family, uh, this is Phil and Sarah StatsCan, spent about $10,500 on shelter. This is their primary home. And so that would include things like property taxes, utilities, maintenance, insurance, rent or mortgage payments. And um, uh, uh, and that $10,500 was basically the average for our 65 plus couple. Uh, on vehicles, uh, the StatsCan couple spent $10,500. And that would include um, typically gas, maintenance, insurance, leasing and financing, uh, leasing and financing costs. And um, that also included the purchase of, of owned vehicles, costs of owned vehicles. And uh, groceries, $5,600 a year. Health and dental, $3,390. Uh, home and garden, and home and garden, so this would be cleaning supplies, furnishings, appliances, garden supplies and services, uh, were $3,020. Clothing and personal care, $2,130. Uh, phone and communications, 1300 a year. Personal insurance and financial services, uh, $1,400. And local transportation, 100 bucks. So all together, and we're going to call this uh, what they spent on the basics, the average family spent $38,000, 65-plus. Then in terms of what they spent on extras, the extras included recreation, entertainment, and reading, and that would uh, include, you know, computer... Uh, computer equipment supplies, recreational vehicles, games of chance, educational costs, etc. And that amount was $2,780. Restaurants, alcohol and tobacco, $2,565. No cost for a second home. Uh, Travel, $1,530. Pets, $270. Charitable and personal gifts, $4,010 and miscellaneous $475 for a total of $11,630 on extras a year. Now, the only other uh, factor was income tax uh, at $7,720. So the total, including tax for the average couple retired, is $57,415. That's what you would need to be on a StatsCan average 65 plus. The couple, will, and these are two real couples, one's called their Pam and Bob Taylor, uh, sorry, Pam and Rob Taylor, they were below average, um, and the biggest differences there were, uh, they, of course, they didn't lease vehicles, they would buy a cheaper vehicle periodically, so we allowed for a, an amount set aside for depreciation for that. Uh, their shelter was about $6,300 versus $10,000, vehicles $5,000 versus $10,000, groceries about the same cost as the average couple, $5,500, uh, health and dental $4,500, is about 1000 bucks more. Uh, home and garden, $2,500. Clothing and personal care, $800. Phone and communications, $1,100. No, um, no cost for personal insurance or financial services and no cost for local uh, transportation for a total of 25000 of their fixed costs, basic uh, expenses. And then in terms of those extras, they spend about um, 11900 so the same amount as the stats can average couple. So a total including taxes of $42,600 versus 
$5,700. So one thing I would say, I guess the, the, the big thing, they, they boosted the travel to $6,000 for the below average couple versus $1,500 for the average couple, a StatsCan couple. Now on the other side of the coin, the moderately wealthy couple, Ross and Helen Cooper, they spent uh, $11,400 on their home to maintain it. $8,500 on vehicles, $7,200 on groceries, so about two grand more than the average. Uh, health and dental, $5,200. Home and garden, $3,000, about the same as the average uh, StatsCan couple. Clothing and personal care, uh, $2,200, same as a StatsCan couple. Phone and communications, $3,000 versus $1,300, so probably ramped up internet and uh, cell phones, etc. <clears throat> personal insurance, $1,800. Local transportation, so this would be cabs, Uber, other things, um, $2,400 a year. So $44,000 versus uh, $38,000 for the StatsCan couple. And in terms of the extras, their recreation entertainment, about the same as the StatsCan couple, $2,400. Restaurants, alcohol, and tobacco, here's a big jump, almost triple. Mm. $7,200 versus $2,500 for that area. Uh, a second home. $3,600 to maintain, uh, I guess, a maintenance fee on a condo or something somewhere. Travel was the biggest one, 16000 versus 1500 for the average StatsCan couple and 6000 for the below average. 6000 on charitable gifts and, and then miscellaneous is 1200 Taxes, 20000 Total income, including tax, 101000 So really what I'm saying here, I guess if we're thinking about your retirement income and what you would need to be able to live a lifestyle, below average, StatsCan average, forty two grand a year. The average Canadian family at 65, 57000 and a moderately wealthy family, 101000 hmm. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a Thanks, great week. Scott. Thanks, Scott.